Humans are designed for ultimate survival, which means that all of our senses narrow the focus of our perception down to the bare essentials. So in our everyday waking state, we, we walk around being able to input just enough data to make sure that we're safe, right? Mm -hmm. We hear a loud noise, you know, it's our reaction to turn around. Our stomach grumbles, so we eat. We perceive, you know, just enough of the visible spectrum to be able to have an analysis of our environment around us. What psychedelics do, when we evoke the psychedelic state, it widens that scope. It, it, it allows our senses and everything else to take on more data. And that's really where you get to kind of start to see there's something well beyond this. And then that's just the perception that we have of our physical state. You know, we close our eyes and all of a sudden we're, we're in a, a totally different realm. I've always struggled with, with the language to describe what I've experienced or what I've felt, but it's, it's something well beyond what we experience day to day in our everyday waking state. And it's extraordinary, it's scary, and it's, it's all the things. And, you know, I think humans just barely scratch the surface. Like we have that little peephole in the fence that we, we get to look through into this realm. You know, we, we spend our entire lives exploring it and, and experiencing it, never really understanding it. It's fantastic. The amazing thing about the mushrooms is that they speak, they talk to you, they will answer questions, carry on conversations. Psilocybin just pulls up a chair on the porch and puts its feet up. Hello everyone, welcome back to another episode of Psilocybin Says. I am Eric Osborne. And I'm Courtney Rose. And we are here today with an episode that I have been long waiting to share. It's an interview with a Dr. Ivan Castleman, who is a very unique individual that I had the good fortune of meeting in Jamaica at a psychedelic conference. He and I hit it off real quick around the topic of LSD. Ah, LSD. Courtney, what's your relationship with LSD I like? <laughs> Uh, well, I'm like mine. excited to listen to this episode uh, with you and Ivan. I wasn't you there. there. I oh well, boy, I must have <laughs> you really must been have in really it. been into the conversation <laughs> so much that uh, you just pushed me off <laughs> the screen. I just walked out of the room. I couldn't hang. Um, my relationship with LSD is uh, it's blossoming. Uh, I guess I could say I don't have a a ton of experience with LSD, uh, a few experiences, maybe four, I think. And, uh, did you do it without me? No. <laughs> I think Oh yeah. Four. We did a very small dose. Yeah. On smaller, smaller and, LSD doses. Yeah. I mean, there were some very enjoyable parts about my first LSD experience in Jamaica mm -hmm. in uh, in the grill, mm -hmm. uh, in the sea. Um, wow. <laughs> I, <laughs> I'm just, I'm just remembering what you said about the sea. Yeah, I don't yeah. even know yeah, if it's let's appropriate. Not not. <laughs> <laughs> you can just daydream over there about what I said yes. about Ugh. being in the sea, warm, wet mother ocean. <laughs> yes, that's right, and uh, that's that's probably my best memory with LSD. It's, it's not, you know, it's not my favorite. I'm gonna be honest. So um, please do. That's that's that mushrooms and. Mushrooms are my favorite psychedelic, period. What, is it, what is it about LSD that, you know, isn't so appealing? What? I guess it's the, it feels 
more like just it's the like synthetic feeling i don't know i don't it doesn't feel as like rich in mm. art mm. to me mm-hmm, mm-hmm. as say mushrooms and i just i feel like with lsd i really really enjoy like 2 hours of it and then the rest of the time i'm kind of it's this weird limbo place it's that's exactly what it is it's this mm. limbo feeling where i'm not like maybe i haven't eaten enough that's the problem. Like I need to like actually take more higher of a dose issue, yeah. so that well, I don't feel I like mean, I'm in limbo. I mean, the one in Jamaica was pretty high. It was, it was 100 micrograms. It was a standard dose, you know. Yeah. When it was at its highest point, that was when I was really enjoying it. Mm-hmm. And then it just dropped off really quickly, mm-hmm. I feel like. Mm-hmm. And then it was this weird, uncomfortable, like just, ugh, like is something going to happen here? I feel like I need mm-hmm. to take more or this just needs to be over. I just feel kind of weird right now. Wow. That's so different. So, yeah. I mean, I understand the kind of the edgy lessness of like, hmm, I feel like something's about to happen, but I don't know what it is. Right. It's that the feeling. Anticipatory kind of. And it just goes on. For I like, love that it just goes on. I, love <laughs> I just love people. When people tell me that LSD lasts too long, I'm just like, what, what, how can like the best day of your life ever last too long? Can it? But that's, I get, if it was like swimming in Mother Ocean and like being in the womb of my creator, like that hour was, mm-hmm. then, and that was what it was for that whole time. God, I, can, I would have that, been doing, I would have, I would be talking about it a lot more and wanting it a lot more. I mean, just that day that we had together, like for me, from the onset all the way to when we got back to Treasure Beach, I was just like, I fucking love it. I love it. I well, mean, I want to like, I do everything that I can to extend the experience without taking more. Uh, like, you know, what cannabis. Is it, so what does it feel like for you? Like what it is- It feels like I'm a Ferrari. Like Eric is now a Ferrari. He is the highest performing <laughs> self that he can be. Yeah, and I just love that. I like sometimes I think I would have made a good fighter pilot because I fucking love being at the edge of the wave as it just gets ready to crash. And that's what I feel like LSD. It's that that's that constant anticipation of what incredible thing is coming next. And I've seen some really neat stuff happen with LSD in terms of like weird synchronicities and things that Mm -hmm. you would never experience otherwise. And and I hear a lot of people talk about that. And I feel like it provides a really neat little window into our potential and allows me to just really explore like, oh, God, when I'm running on all of 16 cylinders or whatever this engine has that it's and I can feel it now like tapping into it I'm just like oh yes wow so the the, the love that for you yeah I love it for me too the challenge <laughs> is though is it I feel like LSD has the potential to feed the ego a little not too much maybe but maybe too much you know mm-hmm. definitely more than mushrooms mushrooms are like will sit you down and humble you mm-hmm repeatedly and whereas lsd my experience has been even from long ago my first lsd experience i remember uh, we were walking bardstown road and it's back when 
Electric Ladyland was open. We go inside and they had one of those magic eight balls. And I shook the magic, or this guy that I was with shook the magic eight ball and he goes, is Eric going to have a bad trip? And it popped up, definitely so. And I had like about three minutes of, holy fuck, cold sweat panics. This is getting ready to go dark. <laughs> <laughs> the magic eight the ball eight just predicted ball my future. And I mean, I'm like 19 years old. And so I go outside and I was, I was very inexperienced with psychedelics at that point, I think. Well, my first LSD experience was prior to my first mushroom experience. So when that happened, something in me knew, no, you don't have to go down that hole. And I just decided, all right, bullshit, I'm going to have a great time. And I did. Whereas with mushrooms, it's hard, it can be really hard to pull out of those dark places. And usually those dark places arise because you need to see that. I didn't really need to see you know, the darkness of the magic eight ball. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, I probably, I quit taking LSD for a long time because I had bought into that whole eating your brain thing. And then when the restart started coming around and like, I knew I was right. This stuff is good for me. It's not bad for me because I always felt like I learned something. Anyway, mm-hmm. I could go on and on and on about how powerful, how wonderful LSD is. It's so horribly stigmatized and and that's really an injustice to the incredible potential of this compound. It's probably, it's certainly the most stigmatized psychedelic still to this day because of Tim Leary and all that kind of stuff, uh, which mm. if you're interested, listeners, there is an incredible documentary out there called Dying to Know that is a uh, really heartfelt documentary about the relationship of Tim Leary and um, Ram Das. It's really powerful. I, I thought Tim Leary was just a, you know, a fuck off, honestly, because of what the way he's presented. And then I watched this documentary and realized that, no, he actually had it. He knew that life is about fun. Life is to be enjoyed. And we are wrapping ourselves up in all kinds of responsibility that doesn't exist and fears that don't exist when we're really here to just play. And that is really what LSD, LSD does for me. Well, you know, maybe maybe that's what's going on when I take LSD. Maybe it's like it's a block. Maybe it's it's showing me my block to playing and having fun. Uh, so I'm willing to revisit it. Uh, oh yeah, a few more times. Yes, I'm willing. It's too early. <laughs> Just not beginning at like 7 oh, yeah, p.m. at night. That's, I can't do that. No, it's my oh, sleep man. schedule. I want to like get going early in the day yeah. <laughs> so I can get my sleep. Well, speaking but, of, Ivan's website and his newest project is called LSD for Breakfast. So, hey, <laughs> all right. I do condone this message um, where LSD is legal, which is, uh, which is where? nowhere. Uh, <laughs> God, so it's so unfortunate. If anyone out there has an LSD church that is sincere, <laughs> Eric will join. Oh, man. <laughs> I mean, it is certainly a spiritual experience. It can absolutely be a communion. And I have a question when that's going to come up. Who's going to raise that banner of the LSD church, the Church of LSD Saints? Get it? Instead of LDS, the Latter-day Saints, wow. the LSD. Wow, you're so good at that. <laughs> anyway, all right. We have gone on long enough. This is a rather extensive conversation between Ivan and I. Courtney could not make it. She wasn't available to play that day. She had too much work to do. <laughs> wow. This is just, the lesson is unraveling. I think that she might be onto something here. Yeah. 
it's worth exploring. Yeah. And uh, I'm up for it. Yeah, we'll see where it goes. Thank you all so much, as always, for listening. Uh, we've been getting a lot of really positive feedback on this show, and it means a lot to Cordy and I because we know that it means a lot to you. That's what this is about. We do this show uh, in some part just to hear ourselves talk, but... <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> and also to see our beautiful faces uh, with this episode is on YouTube right. with Eric and Ivan. So head over there and check it out. Comment, like, subscribe, hit the bell, and... Um, have fun. Have fun. <laughs> Thanks so much. Thanks. All right, Ivan. So tell me, did you have LSD for breakfast today? Uh, um, I plan to be doing that this weekend. <laughs> <laughs> Man, I've been looking forward to connecting with you. Um, you know, I don't know if I conveyed this in Jamaica, but when we were having that conversation uh, at the conference there at the after party, I thought uh, I have met my LSD counterpart. You know, I have all this experience with psilocybin. I don't know very many people that have similar level of experience. And I don't think I've ever, ever met anyone that has the level of experience with LSD that you have. And it is such a fascinating compound. There's so much to talk about here. So, yeah, uh, let's, let's just get into it. How did you get into psychedelics from the start? Give us a little bit of your, your psychedelic background. So yeah, I mean the war on, uh, war on drugs propaganda machine was was really sort of heavy, and and um, so undergoing you know uh, drug education at school and stuff like that, I just really kind of got the feeling that I wasn't being told the whole truth, mm. um, and it turns out um, I wasn't being told any truth at all. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it was all lies, actually. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was actually all lies and propaganda. Um, but uh, I was, I'm, I'm very grateful. My father was a computer studies teacher, so I had early access to the internet um, and, um, and, you know, desire to learn about things that, um, you know, maybe people don't want me to learn about. Um, so I, you know, I dug into the internet and just really um, just got fascinated. Um, I, you know, it kind of paired with my fascination with plants, which started at a very young age. Um, but the okay. fact that, you know, there's all of these extraordinary plants around the world um, that people have been using for thousands and thousands of years that um, can do extraordinary things to your to your mind and and allow you to explore um, things that you know are are well sort of outside the realm of you know our everyday waking state. Um, and the contrast between what were what what I was being taught um, in in those drug education classes in in high school. And what the you know people on the uh, on the internet were you know they were describing these extraordinary experiences and you know the connection with self and nature and others and and all of these beautiful things. So there's a huge contrast. So um, I, uh, I I was more convinced with the people on the internet that you know that were describing their very personal experiences and um, and yeah that was the spark that and and from there. It, it was just a case of, you know, starting to experiment and, and um, you know, bringing in my friends and, and, um, and doing what teenagers do and, and explore, uh, yeah, explore, explore those compounds. Wonderful. Yeah, it's uh, amazing how similar in so many ways the internet and the experience with the internet can be to the psychedelic experience, right? Opening up to all these possibilities, the 
information unfolding in ways that we never would have known until we were exposed to new information. It's I, I, My story is a little sort of similar. I mean, it started for me in a public library at around age eight. I read about peyote and I was like, what the, f- what? You know, yeah. there's this there's this world beyond our world that can be accessed through a plant and somehow it made perfect sense. So did you, so you're in Canada, right? Yes. Yes. A little bit different scenario growing up. I'm curious, like the access in Canada, has it always been uh, more readily available to get a hold of psychedelic plants or was that something you really had to work at? Yeah. So um, I I was actually really lucky to be born and raised in um, a province of Canada called British Columbia. So we're on the West coast. Um, And uh, uh, I mean, from a very early age, I was also involved in the cannabis industry as well. And, um, the, the beautiful thing about, um, you know, people that like farming plants is that once you find, you know, people that like farming cannabis, you're more likely to find people that like, you know, growing mushrooms and, and all that kind of stuff. So er, early days, um, yeah, I, I had access to, you know, wild harvested mushrooms um, from, a, from a very early age. Um, it, it wasn't really until university that where I, I really got sort of some better access to um, some of the other compounds like you know, MDMA and LSD, um, and and then you know I've just I've I've, I've been very uh, aware of those opportunities as as I, I get older and older. So I um, you know I always feel that you uh, you regret the things in life you don't try more than once you do. So I've made it a a life mission to um, you know to experience as many of these psychedelic experiences as as possible. But early days growing up in BC. Um, fairly easy access um, to, you know, some of the, the, the more um, common psychedelics like, like mushrooms. Yeah. I mean, you guys are loaded with wild um, cyanessens and, and other wood lovers and whatnot up there, right? That's correct. Yeah. There, probably, there's probably uh, Liberty Caps, probably got some Liberty Caps up yeah. in BC. Yeah. Yeah. Liberty Caps and then at Amanita as well. Um, oh, you've, you've worked with Amanita? Oh yeah. Uh, well, ah. a little bit, a little bit. Yeah. Okay. Um, very, very cautiously sort of, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. I've had um, quite a few experiences with Amanita, uh, in various yeah. formats. Uh, so how, how would you compare contrast drug culture or even more specifically, maybe psychedelic culture in Canada and the U S are there significant differences? I know you spend, you travel through the U S a fair amount and you know, you're, yeah worldly yeah how do you compare the two well yeah and, and i've also lived in the uk and in, in australia um, okay so i, I think from from a, a globe like i guess from a western perspective from but from a more global perspective you know in north america i think we're just you know a couple steps ahead of the the psychedelic um you know um the the idea of you know building a psychedelic community and everything like that comparing the U.S. and Canada I mean it's a little bit different there's a lot more people in the U.S. Um, and I think that um, the the difference between sort of state level um, regulations versus Canada where we have sort of federal regulations um, make it make it a little bit different but for the most part I think it's a it's it's a fairly unified culture. I, I, I don't think that there's too many differences between the U.S. and Canada. I mean, like, if you look at uh, a city like, you know, San Francisco and Vancouver, I mean, it might, might be a little bit different to, uh, to you know, some of, some of the towns around where you live in, in Kansas and stuff like that. But um, I think generally it, it is. Um, in, in the U.K., 
um, there's actually a very um, sort of rich psychedelic underground, um, but they are that. They're very underground because um, mm-hmm. they're, they're, uh, their government is a little bit more um, uh, controlling, I guess. So, um, so they're, the people that I interacted with while I was in the UK um, are very, very um, cautious about mm-hmm. um, talking about it or, or any kind of like outward expression, whereas in, um, in Vancouver anyways, I mean, it's, a, it's just a common part of the conversation and, you know, nobody's um, judging or um, dobbing you into the cops or anything. And then Australia, I was really lucky to live in an, this extraordinary region of Australia um, called the Northern Rivers, Northern New South Wales. Um, you may have heard of a town called Nimbin, which mm. acts as the, uh, it, it basically, it's a very, very small town in, in rural Australia that acts as the epicenter for the, um, the cannabis movement. But it's, also, it's a very sort of a psychedelic, hippie little village. So I was, I was lucky to, I actually worked there and um, there's uh, a, just a really incredible psychedelic culture there. Again, very underground um, because of the, uh, of the controlling nature of the, the Australian government. Mm-hmm. But, um, and then just beautiful things like uh, there, there's huge acacia forests um, that, uh, you, know, you know, made an eye and all that kind of stuff. So, I mean, the DMT literally grew on trees. Mm-hmm. Um, in Australia, which was great. And then the other little anecdote I'll, I'll, I'll uh, share about um, the region of Australia I lived in is that um, it was also where Bear Owsley um, chose to retire. Oh. So, so the um, mythology is that um, when he decided to retire, he um, cooked up a very large batch of LSD and brought it to Australia. So the, the mythology is that most of the LSD in the region um, was of Bear Owsley origin. And that is something that I can, I, I can probably, uh, you know, it, it seems like a reasonable hypothesis because the LSD in that region was very, very good. Mm. Um, yeah, unfortunately, he actually, um, he actually died in a, in a trailer fire while I was mm-hmm. in Australia. But, um, but yeah, oh, wow. anyways, so um, yeah, psychedelic culture all over the world, it, it, it varies. I think a lot of it has to do with um, how much pressure that the you know the government and the you know the the law enforcement are pushing pushing down on on the psychedelic culture. I think when it's left to flourish, it just you know it does um, yeah. you know very similar to what's happening here in Vancouver. Yeah, I mean we're here in, in Kentucky. We're seeing actually oh, quite Kentucky, a bit. Right. Yeah, yeah, Kansas. it's all good. Yeah, we're seeing quite a bit of Canadian mushrooms coming in. Um, oh, I have interesting. A number of friends, or not friends, but people that I know, let's say, who are buying psilocybin from uh, Canadian online public stores. Um, yeah. I think there's some open head shops there. So, yeah, the, the, the kind of atmosphere in Canada seems so much more open. And I'm sure it's probably different across the, uh, the nation overall. But I feel like I could ask you so many questions about plants and I'll, we'll come back to that, but I'd love to just kind of drill down in on LSD. Um, Absolutely. Courtney's Cor- not with us today. She had too much work to do. Uh, she's not as much of a fan of LSD as I am. I was so deluded by the drug, the drug, anti-drug propaganda uh, for about 20 years. I, in my, in my twenties, I was taking LSD pretty regularly. Um, still believing that it was frying my brain 
And I, I had one experience that was so beautiful and so perfect. I said, all right, let's leave it at that. And then fast forward 20 years later, I kept working with mushrooms all throughout. I went down to a MAPS conference in Tulum. There were some folks from MAPS there, had some LSD. By that time, I had gotten better versed in the actual science around LSD. And I knew that it was yep. good for my brain, but I didn't have access here in Kentucky. So when I knew that this was some good quality LSD coming from some people associated with a reputable psychedelic organization, I was like, this is my, my time again. And so I took just, just a tab and I was just like, what the fuck did I waste that last 20 years not <laughs> doing this? You know? And so since then, uh, LSD is actually becoming quite, um, common uh, here in Kentucky and some very good quality LSD. Uh, and that's exciting. Uh, but it's still probably the most stigmatized psychedelic, I think. And that's what I would love to use this opportunity to do is help just dismiss as much of that stigma as possible. Even people who are taking yeah. mushrooms still think, probably a lot of people still think LSD is bad for you and it is so good for you. Yeah, and, and I 100% agree. Um, and and there, there is still that um, pervasive war on drugs propaganda idea that, that you're, you're, you're rotting your brain, first of all. And then, you know, LSD is dangerous because a long, long time ago, purportedly, somebody took LSD and jumped out of a window. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. and, and, you know, we're, it's, it's not even, um, you know, that, that's not even a verified fact. Um, yeah, it is possible that you take a psychedelic and, you know, it, it, it alters your perception. Um, so there's always there, there's always a small danger it, that you know you might hurt yourself or injure yourself or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, but you know we we get into a car every day and drive around um, and and we take on a very similar risk profile. You know, just driving around in a car. So yes. Um, so let's let's talk about the rotting the brain thing because because that's yeah that's that's definitely a a, a meme from the war on drugs propaganda um, that that's been pervasive. What we have to remember, classical psychedelics, um, they link with neurotransmitters that are already in our body. So we, we actually have um, uh, you know, compounds that are very, very similar to LSD and psilocybin and, and, um, um, and the other classical, classical psychedelics already in our body, already, you know, we, we use them day to day for um, you know, joy and sleep and um, uh, all sorts of um, you know, biological mitigations. So when you take a psychedelic, your body knows what to do with it. It ha already has the lock for the key that the psychedelic is. Now, I mean, psychedelics, um, they, they sort of ramp up production um, in, in very particular ways. And that's why we get those different effects from the different types of drugs. But um, at the end of the day, your body knows what to do with them um, and it does glorious things with them. So we're actually, um, it's a net positive when we take something like LSD because it contributes greatly to our neuroplasticity. Mm -hmm. And, you know, neuroplasticity is probably one of the, you know, the key components of a healthy, productive life. And, and, and I would hypothesize, too, that um, it, it also helps you live a long and productive life as well um, as, as you keep those, neuro those neurons, you know, making different connections all the time. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So it's the opposite of eating your brain. It is your exactly. Brain. Yeah. yeah. And a long, long, long time ago, um, well, about a decade ago now, um, I was living in the UK, got my hands on some, some really good LSD. 
Um, and, uh, but I didn't, like I was, I was going to university, so I didn't have as much time to, um, to, to, you know, take threshold doses. And I was also living in London. It's not the best place to, to, to be doing large amounts. Um, so I had actually, I'd run across a reference, um, a long, long time ago and, and whether this reference is true or not, but apparently when, um, uh, Crick, um, was, um, creating the idea around the double helix of the DNA, um, which they, eventually they won a Nobel Peace Prize for. But the, as the story goes, he was, he was microdosing LSD. And this is one of the very first sort of recordings of, um, in our mod modern time anyways, of people microdosing LSD. So I had all this LSD. So I uh, made a very crude um, dilution of this stuff. And I, and I started to experiment with, with small doses. And um, I mean, that was, you know, it, it's all well and good to say, okay, neurotransmitters and, and, you know, science, 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 but, but I mean, psychedelics is all about the experience, right? Yes. So once I started to, you know, microdose, um, and I was, you know, this was way before we were talking about microdosing protocols or, or, you know, really anyone's kind of, uh, has it, has an interest in running. So I just kind of was doing the experiments on myself mm -hmm. and, that really cemented how important a compound like LSD is to, you know, creativity and productivity and, um, you know, just feeling uh, light, you know, I mean, going to university is a, is, is a stressful, um, stressful thing. Right. So um, everything about the experience that I had about, um, you know, when, when I was, microdosing LSD was just, it was positive after positive after positive. And, and that, that experience really solidified, you know, who I would like, you know, my drive to, um, you know, study these compounds, study these plants. And, you know, my desire, my, my strong desire is now to, you know, um, bring these to the, to the, you know, to the public and, and, and allow everyone to, to really experience these things. Yeah. Yeah. Can you do? You, what are your thoughts on the um, what has been the suggested or possible risk of? Um, I think it's arrhythmia with microdosing LSD and its affinity for the 5-HT2A receptor versus the B receptor. Do you think is there anything to that? Yeah. Well, I mean, in any population, you're always going to get um, like a population typically will. Um, distribute on a bell curve, right? So you're gonna have, you're gonna have people at one end of the bell curve that are, um, you know, that, that probably need a lot more LSD than the average person. Um, you know, I, I figure I, I, I hit the kind of the top of the bell where the average is, you know, I, I, you know, I go on the internet, you know, the people that are taking the typical threshold dose on the internet, you know, I'm, I'm taking about the same amount. So, you know, I'm, I feel, on that compound, I'm, I'm in the average, but on the other side of the bell curve, you're going to get people that are hypersensitive to it or have, you know, a genetic, uh, you know, slight genetic variance between, um, you know, the norm. Mm -hmm. And so there's always going to be small numbers of people that, um, that, you know, something like LSD or psilocybin or whatever is not going to be good for. Um, and we do, well, because we don't have, a you know, a societal standard or a way of indoctrinating ourselves into these compounds, um, we all have to take on the role of a citizen scientist. We all have to take our, the, the responsibility for our own 
um, you know, our, you know, our own usage and, and yeah, so it's, it's something that we have to be cautious of. I don't think the majority of people have to worry about it too much. I think, uh, what is happening right now with the explosion in psychedelic research and all that kind of stuff, what I would envision in the future is that we take a genetic test and they're like, Oh, actually, you know what? Um, you know, take mescaline and psilocybin, but you know, your genetics, we would recommend that you, you know, you don't take LSD because of this and this, um, you know, gene is going to contribute to, you know, maybe, maybe some heart arrhythmia or something like that. Mm -hmm, but um, mm -hmm. we take on risks every day. Um, you know, um, they sell you enough Tylenol in, in, in those little bottles. <laughs> you yeah. Yeah. Um, if you, if you take a cigar and, and soak it in water for, for 24 hours and drink the water, you'll die. Right. So, yeah. And, 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 and if, okay, one more, if the, if the F, if, if salt was put in front of the FDA today, it wouldn't be um, approved as a, as a food supplement, uh, you know, so, so, so we take on these risks. Um, I think that it's really important to be cautious of these risks. What happens is that um, when you translate science, so um, there's a, there's a translation between science and the general public. And that normally happens through the media. And what the media will always do is they'll, they'll draw out all these like really choice pieces that are meant to evoke emotional reaction mm -hmm. and something like that will evoke emotional reaction. So, yes, yes. Um, yeah. So that, that, that's kind of where I land on that. <laughs> Excellent answer. Excellent answer. I mean, we, we, we don't bring personal responsibility into the conversation enough. You know, we act like someone Agreed. is, supposed to be regulating every step of ours and you have an individual responsibility for your actions whatever they are and I, yeah. I knew that going into you know going into jamaica and, and taking as much psilocybin as i did there's no one i had never and still to this day can't find any cases of someone who took large doses of psilocybin six times a month for three years straight so i knew going in i was a guinea pig and here i am i think better off for it Big question that I've been wanting to ask around LSD for so long. You mentioned this quality of LSD and having like really good quality LSD. And that's a thing, right? Like you get some, it's not so strong. You get some, it has a, a little bit different effect. But to our basic understanding, the, the chemical compound is the same all the time. Is that is that yeah. not the case? How is it that we're getting different quality of LSD if it is the same kind of structure? Yeah. So, I, I mean, it starts at the synthesis. So um, there, there's a couple of different synthesis routes um, and, uh, and a couple of different starting materials that you can use. So um, because um, LSD is not manufactured in a GMP lab, um, you know, and, and, you know, highly, highly regulated and, and supervised and stuff like that, um, you know, the, you know, the, the quality of the, of the cook is, is, you know, is the quality of the product and, and, and that's going to pass, pass down to, to the customer eventually. Um, the, I think the two main factors, um, with LSD quality is first it's dilution. So, um, you take a gram of LSD. Um, I, th I think that's worth a hundred thousand hits or something like that, but it's, 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 it's a lot of, there's a lot of a gram. 100,000 micrograms, basically. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so, okay. 
So, um, so you, you say your 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 chemist um, sells a gram to to like a you know somebody, and then that person' job is to dilute it down, right? Because typically, what we're going to get um, for end product is going to be either tabs or liquid, and both of those you have to take the LSD crystal and you have to dissolve it in some sort of uh, liquid. It's it. Hopefully, that's good. Okay, so your dilution factor has to be really really um, precise all the way down because your 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 tab is, is only worth about a hundred micro you know it, it may not be necessarily the quality of the you know mm -hmm. over time you get you know this dealer um dilutes it and then you know because you'd, you'd probably you know higher level dealers would, would probably end up buying a concentrated version and then it's their job to dilute that down and you know volumetric dilution is very very difficult to do um, I mean, you're probably better to do it by weight than, than by volume, but, you know, unless you have a very precise volumetric measure, um, you're, you're going to, there, there's going to be errors, right? Even if you, even if you have a 1% error every time you dilute, um, by the time you get to the, you know, the, the hundred microgram level, um, you could have, you know, 50 micrograms, you could have 200 micrograms. Um, so I think I think that that has a lot to do with the quality. The second issue with with um, with LSD in particular is that it's very very light sensitive. In fact, during the synthesis process, there's one or two steps of the synthesis process that has to be done in dark room conditions. So they have like the yellow or the red bulb and all that kind of stuff. So oh, okay. it, it's very very sensitive to light as well. So um, so again, if you don't if light and heat, but but primarily light. So if if you haven't you know if you I don't know, leave an LSD vial, you know, on your dashboard for an hour, um, you know, and it gets the, the heat and the light, that's going to degrade. And because again, your, your volumes or your concentration is so low, you know, you, you adjust your um, concentration by two or 3%, you know, that's a, you know, that's quite a lot of, uh, of difference in your final dosing. Wow. Yeah. Huh. It has me wondering, I had, I had a vial in Jamaica, years ago was just so mild and i wonder if uv rays through transit or carrying around or if they general the the heat in the environment what what, what how in terms of sensitivity to heat how how does that factor in if you're like 95 100 degrees outside is that going to be reduced in potency yeah absolutely um wow. so i mean your 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 ideal conditions would be like in the fridge right dark and cool Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, and having, yeah, have, having, uh, dealt with psilocybin, um, containing mushrooms in Jamaica, I know for a fact that, you know, you're like from harvest to drying, um, to storage, uh, yeah, we have like, there's some, some elements that we really have to consider right. because you know, we want that end product to be, you know, high in, in, um, psilocybin and, and psilocin, but, um, yeah, mu mushrooms, that's a whole other um, story about the stability of, of the active ingredients in that as well. But right. um, typically classical psychedelics like it in a cool and dark, that they, they like to be stored in a cool, dark place. Yeah, yeah. I don't know why. I just kind of, well, I, I didn't think about that enough with LSD when I had it down there. And I was really disappointed when I came back to it and it was significantly, I mean, I dosed like 10 people one day and everybody was just kind of like, eh, it's not really happening. So that yeah. must be what was behind it. What, in terms of dosing, I'm curious as to what you have worked with on the higher end, what your experience of others in this, you know, 
the far reaches of LSD, what that's like. I've read some anecdotal reports of, of some just insane doses accidentally ingested and people coming out better afterwards, you know? Yeah. So, um, uh, let's, let's talk about these high doses because I think that there's something in there. Um, so, uh, a while back I, I helped a, a colleague, um, write up a case report. Um, and, uh, I believe this person had, uh, snorted something like half a gram of LSD. Um, the, I'll have to, I'll, I'll have to, um, shore up the details, but basically they, they, they mistook, um, LSD for, a, a compound that you would normally snort. Mm-hmm. Um, my first question is who's, who's leaving half a gram of LSD crystal. <laughs> right. <laughs> if, if I had that, it would be like hermetically sealed and stored in nitrogen and, you know, in a, in a safe, in a safe, in a safe somewhere, you know, very, very, yeah. you know, um, I've, I've, yeah. But I mean, anyway. I mean, what's the what's the volume on a half a gram look like either? Oh yeah, I mean, like, uh, you, yeah, you'd probably, you know, half a gram is going to probably be like, you know, it would easily fit into the smallest Ziploc bag you have. Right. Um, so, so yeah, it's it's a uh, yeah, it's not something that, that should be just laying around. Kids, that if you've got a gram so of LSD, yeah. yeah, don't don't leave that lying around. But anyways, <laughs> this guy got into it. He he managed to uh, to get crystalline LSD, and and snort it went into a coma for um, something like 14 days, I think. Like it was, a, it, was a, it was a long time, he was in a coma. But when he came out, um, he had several uh, mental health indications, um, one of which I believe was bipolar. And um, he came out of, out of the LSD trip um, fine phys- physiologically and, and mental, uh, like, um, you know, his, his, all his mental capacities were, were fine. And he had, um, either reduction or elimination of the majority of his mental health indications. Mm-hmm. So um, that indicates that, and I, I, I've heard anecdotal stories, for, um, you know, a, f- a few times where people have taken very, very large doses, probably had a really uncomfortable trip um, mm-hmm. or, or ended up in a coma in the hospital, but came through it much better off. And we're better and, off. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's like a, it's like a, like a, a reset. Where, How the- um, how would it induce a coma? Is there any understanding of that? I don't know. My hypothesis would be that um, you're, I mean, you're, when your body gets beyond its its uh, sort of realm of explanation, or or it, it sort of kind of knows that things aren't right, um, it you know that it, as a shock response, it would it would probably shut down. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, very similar to like you know hypothermia, for example. If you get too cold, your body will you know pat like basically pass out. Um, and that, that protects, um, that's your body, you know, um, shutting down and, and basically protecting all of your vital organs. So it pulls all the blood to your brain and to your heart and, and kind of like leaves the extremities. It's like, well, you know, we don't need these particularly, we want to keep the brain and the heart going. So I think, I think that that would be my hypothesis. Um, but, uh, I guess too, from a, from a experiential point of view that, um, it would be very, very overwhelming to have that much LSD uh, yeah. on board. Um, so I, maybe, maybe you just like you're so overwhelmed that you just you know shut off. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine that would be yeah, yeah kind of the response. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So <sighs> in terms of in terms of my own experimentation, I've definitely not um, pushed the realms that far. Um, you know, my typical dose is like a tab, so like 100, 100, 100 micrograms. 
um, you know, and, and in the past, you know, you, you push it a little bit. So, you know, I probably pushed it up to like, you know, so, somewhere in the neighborhood of 300 micrograms. Okay. Um, but I think that when I was younger, I, I really sort of, I wanted the, 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 the maximum experience and, and to really push it as far as I can. Um, as I get older and, and sort of have had more experience with this, I actually am enjoying, you know, less and less of a, of a, you know, heavy experience, I guess. Um, and, you know, just trying to find that perfect point where you're, you're having a threshold psychedelic experience. Um, but you're, you're still, you still have the capacity to, uh, to, you know, uh, I guess kind of run your, your, your brain and, and, you know, and really explore the, the subtleties of the, of, of the compounds and, and how they interact with your body. What I'm most interested in is how they interact with your mind because I've not found very many things in my life that that make my my brain sing like yeah. like LSD and and, and other classical psychedelics yeah yeah LSD uh, for me has been more of that brain singing even than psilocybin I, I love that I love that metaphor I mean psilocybin has been just the experience is all over the place right LSD mm -hmm. has been relatively predictable in my experience and has been much easier to direct when i'm having a challenging experience i can just say you know let's let's look at something different and it becomes a very different experience psilocybin not 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 necessarily so yeah i agree and i, th I think again hypothesize that some of that would come from the purity of the compound so you know lsd mm -hmm. we're, we're pretty much taking the the exact same compound every time whereas psilocybin is a highly varied mm -hmm. um you know I mean, there's beta carbolines and there's tryptamines and there's all sorts of, um, mm -hmm. you know, really interesting things in mushrooms, things that we ha have even, haven't even started to get to the bottom of. Right. I'm sure have lots of great therapeutic and medical benefits, but I I'm the same. Typically with mushrooms, that's more of a, you know, um, you know, kind of, I guess, a more of a body connection. Um, and I'd much be much more inclined to, you know, feel a, a strong connection to my environment or to nature. Um, and uh, where, whereas, yeah, LSD is a very intellectual um, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. and, and yeah, like intellectual in the way that it makes my mind sing, not intellectual as in, you know, I'm wanting to read books or anything <laughs> yeah. like that. But, <laughs> Doing uh, equations. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. I, I had one LSD experience. I did, a, I did a 300, accidentally did a 300 mic. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me, dose once. I thought it was, I didn't know it was double dipped basically. And um, I ended up having a, a purge. It was, the, it was the only time I've ever had a purging experience on LSD. And it was, it, it was, it was something very otherworldly. And it has had me wondering about uh, what I guess I could only call the shamanic pr potential of LSD, right? We have all this history of mescaline and psilocybin uh, and DMT in a shamanic, energetic, you know. I, I'm really curious to hear about your perception of the spiritual experience, but um, LSD not having any, that I know of, any history of this kind of um, yeah, the energetic shamanic experience, it, it created a lot of curiosity in my mind as to what could be done with higher doses 
of LSD. And since then, I've been wanting to do like a 500 mic dose or something. And, you know, I would obviously want to, I think, probably a sitter for that. Yeah, um, set setting, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, this one was, uh, anyway, I won't go into it, but it was, it was a pretty wild experience. But first of all, if you could just kind of share your perspective on the the mystical nature of psychedelics and then how we might be able to apply that through LSD. hundred percent. Yeah. So, I mean, with, with LSD, I, I def, it has a high potential for, you know, shamanic use. And if we look um, back, um, give an ex one example, the Mazatec, um, they use three um, different um, plants and fungus as part of their shamanic rituals. Um, although in, um, in Oaxaca, they're called curanderos and curanderas. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, these um, these people they they use salvia divinorum, um, which uh, uh, which I, I know a little bit about. Um, that's their sort of introductory um, psychedelic experience, and it brings you to the tree of life and 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 teaches you the knowledge of life. Um, and then they use mushrooms, um, but they also use morning glory. Um, mm -hmm. Now, I'm pretty sure they call it a gokui. I might I might not be saying that quite right, but um, I've seen the term, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so they use uh, a type of um, morning glory called Rivera Combrosa, um, and that the seeds of that plant have LSA in them. So mm -hmm. LSD has actually been used. Well, so um, a sim uh, compounds in the family of LSD have right, been used yeah. for, for shamanic um, rituals for for yeah. a long time. So um, you know, I think it really does have the um like a high potential for that use overall as far as you know the shamanic use or the spiritual use of um of psychedelics i think one, one thing that i've sort of come to realize is that humans you know we seek that novel experience and so i think you know there, there is a reason why you know humans um uh you know as opposed to you know most other mammals on the planet um why we why we've sought out the psychedelic experience and and how and why we've incorporated them and sort of solidified them in our cultural practices um, over time because because we're you know the human mind is set up to explore and to to learn and to grow and psychedelics are a very very um, powerful way of doing that and it's a very powerful way you know like you know I can go exploring you know I can get in my car and I can drive. Uh, and I can explore that way. But um, you imagine, you know, at the height of human civilization, we all lived in tribes and we were all very, uh, we were fairly geologically or geographically bound rather. So mm -hmm. our exploration potential, you know, maybe wasn't as high as, you know, being able to get on the plane and fly into Australia. You know, they, um, they, they knew their environment very, very well and intimately, mm -hmm. but they, they could utilize these psychedelics to, um, you know, to foster that human need to explore and, and, you know, delve into the unknown and to understand um, who you are and where you go. So I think it's a very natural um, progression that, you know, over time humans have discovered plants that, you know, they're not nutritious, but they, they evoke an experience and, and, and we've incorporated that into our spiritual practices. And I mean, we, we come out the other end now um, as, uh, you know, as sort of, a, you know, large scale industrial society. And, you know, even the dogmatified religions today um, that, that we're exposed to, if you, if you look back far enough, you know, there's lots of interesting hypotheses and theories about 
um, how those religions got started with mm -hmm. some sort of psychedelic experience. And I think what we have to remember too is that, you know, the doors to perception have many keys and um, it's up to us as an individual and, 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 you know, society to find the right key, the, the, the key that fits to our doors to perception. So, you know, it might be psychedelic plants. I know that, that you and I probably agree on that, that one as, as probably the, the, our most favorite key anyways, um, <laughs> you know, trance dancing, fasting, any kind of sensory deprivation. You know, I know people that, that get high when they go running, um, mm -hmm. you know, so there, there's all of these different ways of evoking the psychedelic experience. And I think like tomorrow, if you took all potential for, you know, took all psychedelics away, all plants, all compounds, all, all, all that kind of stuff, you know, humans um, would get, get to work finding the next way to, to, you know, to, to explore that inner space. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And I think that's going to be a big part of normalizing psychedelics in our culture is helping people understand how how normal and how valuable altered states themselves are. We put ourselves into altered states all of the time. Yeah. And so just, just to kind of put this all on the same level playing field that we're just shifting our consciousness to get a different perspective. What is your perspective on um, this I guess, reported uh, world beyond our world. You know, as a scientist, how do you experience, how do you understand experiences that may seem to illustrate uh, deeper realities? And how do you bring that into your, your daily life? Yeah, so um, I was very, very lucky. Um, I studied with a shaman um, named Guillermo um, when I was in my very early 20s. And... Um, just, you know, again, just that, that desire to, to experience the, the psychedelic experience in, in varied ways. And um, that was an ayahuasca. So I, I did two ayahuasca ceremonies um, with, with, with him. And those two experiences basically switched my, my worldview 180 degrees. I mean, up, up to that point, I was very, you know, if you can see it, if you can touch it, it's real, you know, that's that. And then, you know, when we, when we talk about, you know, the dream world or a psychedelic state, or even like when, when shamans are talking about, you know, spirit possession and all that kind of stuff, well, you know, that's just, uh, you know, that's just a little bit of, of, of theater and show to, you know, to solidify whatever the, the, the goal was of the shaman to, you mm -hmm. know, to heal or whatever. Um, well, it turns out that that's totally wrong. Um, <laughs> like we, there is, I mean, we humans are designed for ultimate survival, which means that all of our senses narrow the focus of our, uh, you know, of our perception down to the bare essentials. So in our everyday waking state, we, we walk around being able to input just enough data to make sure that we're safe, right? Mm -hmm. We hear a loud noise, you know, it's our reaction to turn around, you know, our stomach grumbles, so we eat. Um, you know, we, we, we perceive, you know, just enough of the visible spectrum to be able to have a, a, an analysis of, the, of our, our, our environment around us. What psychedelics do, when we evoke the psychedelic state, it widens that scope. It, it, it allows our senses and everything else to take on more data. And, um, and that's really where you get to kind of start to see, you know, that there's, there's something well beyond this. And then that's not, not to even, you know, that's just... The perception that we have of our physical state you know we close our eyes and all of a sudden you know we're we're in a, a totally different realm 
And I've always struggled with the, um, with the language to describe, you know, what I've experienced or what I've felt. Um, but it's, it's something well beyond what we experience day to day in our, in our everyday waking state. Um, and it's, it's extraordinary and it's, um, it's scary and it's, it's all the things. And, you know, I think humans just barely scratch the surface. Like we just, we have that little, you know, peephole in the fence that we get to, we get to look through into this realm. Um, but it's, uh, yeah. And, you know, we, we spend our entire lives exploring it and, and experiencing it, never really understanding it. It's fantastic. Um, you know, at the same time, you know, I'm a scientist, you know, so from, from a scientific perspective, I think that understanding that there's something well beyond the realm of human understanding and explanation is, is, a, is a very strong motivator for me to create, you know, good science. And, and, you know, because, I mean, obviously the science is well, you know, very, very, um, very, very far away from that psychedelic experience, but, you know, step by step, we, 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 you know, we create those small little bits of understanding and over time, you know, whether or not, you know, humanity in a thousand years will be able to explain these, you know, these um, unknown realms that we experience when we're, when we're in a psychedelic state or not, maybe it's supposed to be, but um, you know, that the psychedelic experience definitely informs and, you know, helps, you know, me as a scientist, but mm. uh, you've got to, you've got to straddle both worlds that you've got to have a, well, maybe you don't have to, but I, you know, have a strong, you know, spiritual kind of quest or journey that I, that I partake in. Um, and then, you know, you gotta, gotta make a living and, and, uh, and, and do, do your day to day. Right. So that's, that's where I get into the lab and do my thing. So. Right. Right. Well, I think any scientist who is actually working, consistently with psychedelics is going to have to broaden their perspective, you know, hundred yeah, percent. And even gonna... beyond that, I, yeah, there's a great quote by, by, uh, um, Einstein, which I can't recall off the, bo- the top of my head, but basically it's like, you know, if you study science enough that you understand that, you know, there, there's a God, um, mm-hmm. or, or however, I, I, that's the other thing that the language around this is really hard to explain. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah cause, Cause if you say, Oh, you know, I've, I've talked to God. Well, you know, there, there's a lot of different interpretations that you'll get from the people that you talk to. Um, mm. But I've li- like, you know, I can, I can, you know, very honestly say that I've, I've talked to God several times. We've had some mm. good conversations, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. but, uh, but yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm so curious how this interfaces particularly with our growing understanding of quantum mechanics and, and physics and, uh, I know that there are a number of scientists out there who are exploring that world who are also working with psychedelics and that the psychedelics informs their grounded, rational work. Uh, and so seeing these tools that seem so far removed from our everyday life being able to uh, be applied to scientific understandings of everyday life seems like a natural fit, right? Like you're saying, if this is, if this is something that broadens our awareness to what's going on, then someone who is trying to understand reality would do well to incorporate these tools into their exploration, into their scientific studies. 
Yeah. And, and even if it's um, at the, you know, the bare minimum, just, you know, having a psychedelic experience creates neuroplasticity and that neuroplasticity then gives you um, the, you know, uh, the potential of, mm-hmm. you know, you know, taking that data in your brain and, you know, rehashing it through, you know, a new neural network and, you know, coming to, you know, slightly modified conclusions or anything like that. Um, but at the same time, yeah, I think, I, I think that when you, you take psychedelics, you understand more about yourself, you understand more about the world around you, and then you feel a connection as well. And then when, when you come out of it, you know, as a scientist, you're, I mean, that's a, you know, that's, that, that, that's a, very heavy motivator to, you know, to get into the science and under, you know, understand what that connection is or understand what, you know, what, what we're experiencing. So I think, you know, psychedelics and science go hand in hand. And, you know, I think, you know, the realm of psychedelics and the, and the realm of science, you know, I think we're, we're not quite where one can like can fully explain and inform the other, but, you know, we're slowly making those, that progress towards, you know, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, one day, you know, maybe, you know, quantum mechanics and, you know, psychedelics and, you know, all sorts of other, like, um, you know, scientific disciplines and stuff like that. Maybe we'll find a, a synthesis point and all this, you know, and, and, you know, that'll create, you know, more understanding and um, all that kind of stuff. But, yeah. It's, it's, it seems to be the tra- trajectory. Seems seems only natural. Uh, I'm recalling an experience that I had working with a marine biologist in in Jamaica. And we went down to the beach after his uh, one of his trips. And I remember he was just there on the coral saying, why didn't we have this in graduate school? Why didn't I have yeah. psilocybin to explore? And he was just fascinated. And I think the the other kind of arm of that triad though is what we have touched on a little bit this spirituality right and it's it's so loaded historically it's been so loaded uh with dogma and you know just kind of like projection onto others judgment onto others but as you alluded to that there are so many very i would say concrete references in mystical traditions to psilocybin mushrooms in particular, but other psychedelics as well. Um, And now we're in this place societally where I think the vast majority of thinking people have seen that religion is ultimately defunct, that they've just been kind of just giving us this same story for, you know, hundreds, thousands of years. It's there is no direct experience. There is just, you know, again, judgment and dogma. Whereas now we're having access to these tools again that take us back to the way that our ancestors interfaced with their, the other side of themselves. And so to consider what our society could look like if we, if we really do get decades or a, you know, a century to explore with psychedelics, science and spirituality, it seems like there's a, there will, will at some point be a confluence. And I don't know, do you have any, um, are there any traditions that you look at that are, are able, that have done that effectively? And how do you see us kind of bringing those experiences together and what that looks like as a future society, if you, if you have a vision there? Yeah, so I'll, I'll just one sort of antidote from um, from uh, my time in London. Um, I was really lucky to uh, the, the the cook that worked in the worked 
where I lived, um, he, uh, he was a Sufi. And so we had many, many conversations, you know, he was cooking, cooking food and stuff about sort of his, um, you know, how, how his, um, his religion have sort of dealt with, with that kind of stuff. And he, um, it was, it was really interesting because the, the, I mean, basically the Sufis, when the, the Muslims came, the Sufis were like, oh, okay, you, new religion. Okay, that's fine. Like, give us your books. We'll, uh, you know, we're, we're not going to fight you on this. And so what the Sufis did is they got to work and they, they learned, um, the, the literature, the, the Muslim literature better than anyone else. So when, uh, when, when, you know, when the controlling powers came to the Sufis and said, well, what about this and this and this, they, you know, they took out the Quran or whatever and said, well, actually, you know, in the Quran it says this and this and this, and this is how we interpret it. Um, oh, okay, we'll carry on. So, um, and they've got a lot of like, uh, you know, like breathing and, and, and some really interesting kind of psychedelic practices. So I, you know, when, when, when we, when I point to maybe a, a spiritual group that's, um, that's kind of incorporated over, over time, you know, both the psychedelic, the, the dogmatified religion and sort of the day-to-day societal living that we have to do. Um, I, I think that that's, that's a really interesting, um, example. Um, I think what we have to remember about religion, you know, I, I, I grew up Catholic. And so in my early adulthood, I was anti-religion, you know, anyone that joins a religion, um, you know, why, why would they, they ever want to do that? Why don't they just want to think for themselves, all this kind of stuff. As I get older, um, you know, I understand that those, the, you know, religions, um, they, they have a lot of, um, elements to them that that contribute to society and you know one of them is community and um and and a lot of people they like we've done psychedelics and we understand what the you know what the benefits are but um most people don't want to um explore in that kind of way so the religion you know, and, and, and just like we seek, novel, like humans seek novel experience, um, you know, I think that there's a component of the human, um, you know, psyche or the human spirit that desires, you know, that some sort of spiritual connection. So religions then sort of end up being, uh, you know, a turnkey easy way for people to, to kind of access that feeling. Now, whether or not religions are defunct or not, I can I can definitely agree that you know the the participation in dogmatified religions is waning, and <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, and 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 that's largely because um, the 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 older those religions get, the farther they get away from their roots. Um, if you essentialize almost every single religion on the planet to its you know core beliefs or its you know or or its principles or whatever, you find that there's there's more similarities than there are differences. Mm-hmm. Um, the problem is that, you know, uh, when a religion gets large enough or, or you know, um, a, you know, a populace takes on a, a religion in, in, a, in a meaningful way, um, it becomes a control mechanism. So people um, in power will utilize that control mechanism to, to keep their population easy to govern because people in control always want to make it as easy as possible to govern. So... Um, you know, Christianity is a really good example of that. Um, you know, the Council of Nicaea basically rewrote the Bible so that Charlemagne would have a, a, a national religion and, and, you know, the, the type of 
changes that they made, made it sort of, you know, everyone is subservient and they have to talk to somebody to talk to God. And, you know, there, there's a lot of elements that they kind of stripped out. Um, they, they stripped out the balance between the, the feminine and the masculine. Um, so, so then what you have is a dogmatified religion designed for societal control. And there's still those elements of spirituality in, in Christianity, but, you know, it's, it's basically been stripped of, of the, the core mm-hmm. essentials. And I think now, you know, humanity is, um, you know, there's a lot more humans um, and the, our connectedness is increasing, you know, day by day, month by month. And that connectedness means that we're sharing more. So, you know, 30 years ago, if I wanted to know what somebody was doing in the middle of the Amazon, um, I would have to go to the library and read books or documentaries, or I'd have to go there. Now, if I'm interested, you know, like, oh, well, I mean, you know, central Brazil, I, you know, I wonder what's happening there. You know, a, a few lines of Google search, I, I, can, I can know what's happening. So I think what we're going to find is that, you know, where in, in the past people have really been drawn to those religions because it's community and it's in front of them, um, but because they just didn't have access to the information. As we get more and more access to the information, um, we're going to we're going to sort of drift away from those, those dogmatified religions in favor of an individual experience. Because at mm-hmm. the end of the day, I mean, you can be part of the largest religion in the world. You can be going to the biggest church, you know, in, in, in the U.S. Um, at the end of the day, the feelings of spirituality you feel are an individual experience. Yes. And, they're an ex- and they're ex- they have to be experienced. You can't be told about the psychedelic or the, the, the spiritual experience and stuff like that. So I think, you know, I think we're starting to see a trend where people are going to start to seek out their own personal um, experiences that, you know, they're going to take on uh, on the responsibility for you know, understanding who they are as a person and, and what kind of spirituality and, and, and what what's meaningful to them. Yeah. Yeah. I love that and completely agree. And you brought up the importance of community within spiritual exploration, the importance of community within mental health, the, the value of community within psychedelia is something that I think is starting to really come to the surface now. You know, we've had people who have been doing psychedelics on their own uh, because of drug laws and having to hide. And now that we have more open acceptance, tolerance, legalization in some situations, we're seeing just those those the very beginning stages of these communities centered around psychedelics and it feels like that is the other part the other component that is going to massively contribute to our growth as a society are you looking for a community that allows you to authentically express and explore what it means to be human? One that honors the divinity within you and all life? Then Sanctuary may be just the community you have been looking for. Sanctuary is a faith-based organization centered around the sacrament of sacred mushrooms for spiritual exploration and personal development. You are invited to become a member and commune with us. Join us for a Sunday Zoom service or a weekend sacred mushroom retreat in the beautiful Kentucky countryside. Visit P-S-A-N-C-T-U-A-R-Y dot org to become a member and find more information. When we can have the direct experience and then come into a community where others who have had similar experiences are able to 
form a bond. I mean, you know, like, especially those of us who have been working in psychedelics for so long, when we meet someone else who is into psychedelics and who is obviously highly experienced, then I think most of us feel some sense of camaraderie, if not like actual community. 100%. Yeah. Um, I've grappled with the psychedelic community term a little bit um, because having experienced different, di different sort of, I guess, sectors of this community around the world, mm -hmm. um, I find that in my experience thus far anyways, is that I, I tend to use the word tribal as opposed to community because, mm -hmm. um, because normally these groups are uh, founded and, and, and bond around you know, a particular practice or a particular compound or a particular activity. Um, not to say that those tribes don't, you know, make up the, the psychedelic community as a whole, mm -hmm. but, um, you know, I, um, I was exposed to, uh, to two different ayahuasca groups when I was living in London and very, very different groups, very different reasons for practicing, um, practicing those things. And, but when you talk to one group about the other group, they were very, um, you know, uh, dismissive of the other group like oh they're mm -hmm. you know i mean and, and a very very similar to what happens with dogmatified religions you know yeah. you know one religion is like well actually we're the religion so not not this guy <laughs> um, yeah. so and Gen and i think like, because, yeah because psychedelics create such a like such a, a a strong bond when you do it with within a group um i think it's only natural that we bond with people that are you know enjoying the, the similar compounds. Now, that said, I've met extraordinary psychedelic explorers and researchers from all around the world. And I mean, you hit the nail on the head. Um, you know, you start like, I mean, you know, we, we started up our conversation um, in, in, in Jamaica, right? And, you know, um, it, it didn't take very long for us to, you know, to, to link in and understand that, you know, that, that, you know, we've, we've got some, you know, some um, mutual interests and, and, you know, we, we really like, we, you know, we bonded over our, you know, our love and our experience with psychedelics. So mm -hmm. I think what we're going to find in the near future is that those, those kind of bonds are, are going to grow globally and we're going to slowly cohese, uh, you know, a psychedelic community. Um, one of the, I think one of the big factors that we don't have this, you know, um, sort of comprehensive psychedelic community, um, now is, is largely because of government regulations and, and the fact that, that you know, um, tr uh, a tribal approach is a very good way of, you know, restricting access of the outside. So er they're, thereby protecting yourself. Um, whereas, you know, like we wouldn't ever think of an alcoholic tribe, right? You know, um, I don't even know if you think of alcohol, like, you know, people that drink alcohol as a community, um, but there, it's, yeah, maybe not the best example, but um, it's interesting though. And making the comparison between alcohol and psychedelics, uh, it's kind of a go-to when we talk about safety profile, when we talk about you know uh, abuse patterns and whatnot. Um, but not a lot of not a lot of comparison of similarities, and, or yeah. even thinking about it in terms of community. I mean, I you know here in Kentucky. Bourbon is very much a community thing. And, and yeah. I, when I go into kind of these bourbon-centric events, I don't feel like I fit in. I'm like, I don't belong in this community, you know. Yeah, I agree. Uh, yeah. I don't know that it kind of like um, 
transfers, translates into various forms of alcohol. But, you know, there's a bunch of craft breweries here and there's this culture and community built around beer. But I guess what the, 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 the direction I'd like to take this conversation for the time being uh, is is maybe a little bit less on the optimistic side, but I want to explore this. I, I think about this a fair amount. You know, we're all so excited that psychedelics are finally, we, we can talk about this. We can, you and I can have a public conversation talking about our experience with psychedelics and not be looking over our shoulder once it gets published. Yeah. You already mentioned the fact that um, kind of through religion, um, those in power want to stay in power. We see that in politics. That's obvious. And I, I, I can't help but sometimes have this kind of lingering feeling that this might not last. That, go ahead. Oh, yeah. No, for sure. I, um, I also have the same um, concern. Um, that that we might be you know we might be on a trend but it might not be um, a forever thing. Um, what we have to remember is that you know the I guess you know laws are made by politicians and politicians will only ever work in their own self-interest. They're they're not interested in anything else but getting reelected. Mm-hmm. So um, as the the sort of ethic and the moral of society progresses. Um, the politicians basically get sucked along because if they if they ignore the momentum in in a, in a society, then they won't get elected anymore. Mm-hmm. And and they're they're hyper focused on their reelection. So um, if we take a step into the cannabis industry, you know, one of the like sort of the tip of the spear for cannabis medical legalization and and that whole momentum that that happened in, in the uh, you know late '90s and early 2000s um, was that you know, there is documented proof that, you know, children having epileptic seizures were given cannabis and that those epilepsy seizures were, you know, diminished or, or went away. And there's no one on, on, there's no one that, you know, can feel on the planet that would say, oh, okay, well, we're not going to, we're not going to give these kids this type of medicine to make them feel better. We're just going to let them have the seizures. Mm-hmm. So I think that, um, that, that, you know, that was one of the sort of, yeah, like the tip of the spear that society really started to understand, you know, what the use potential is for um, cannabis. Now, we flip over to psychedelics. Um, here in Canada, um, some of the first um, patients that were given access to um, psilocybin to, um, for, for, um, for a, as a medical treatment were people in some sort of end-of-life condition. Right. So again, like what, you know, reasonable person on the planet is going to say, well, you're dying. Um, No other uh, other um, compounds have given you any kind of relief. But, you know, you take mushrooms every six months and it reduces your anxiety. And, you know, it allows you to connect better with your family and and enjoy the quality of life, you know, improve the quality of life for, you know, um, for the remainder of your time. Um, and I think that that can be said um, with, you know, PTSD, we have soldiers and firefighters and um, ambulance drivers and police and all of these people that, you know, we, um, we rely on in our society to, you know, to, to help, you know, run and, and, and help a, a function in society. Uh, well, the soldier thing, m- maybe not so much, but anyways, well, that's a, that's a topic for another time. Um, but we've, we've got these people and they get PTSD 
we give them psychedelics every six months and, you know, that PTSD is greatly reduced or diminished, right? Like, again, what reasonable person is going to say, okay, well, these people that are helping our society and, and you know, really con contributing, you know, more than the average person to a functioning society, how can we deny them something that's, that's going to work? So, um, so, and then, you know, that then tra translates into popular opinion. And I think that we can both agree that popular opinion on psychedelics is either yes or um, it's not for me, but, you know, anyone that wants to try it should be able to try it, um, mm -hmm. which gives you basically the majority of society saying, you know, it's, you know we're, we're okay with psychedelics, how, how, however they play out. Um, and then that translates into, over time, um, you know, a shift in political opinion. Um, so, you know, those, those politicians are, you know, they just have to get sucked along. Um, you know, and we're still going to, you know, you're still going to get the, the, the odd politician that's got the old school thinking. Or, I mean, I, I saw this a lot in Australia where the, um, the politicians in Australia, they really towed this very conservative line when it came to, um, you know, cannabis and, and psychedelics and stuff. And it's like, you know, it's hard no, because if I said yes, or even if I said maybe, um, you know, my very conservative voters will will, mm -hmm. will will vote me out of office and I won't have any say at all. Um, so, and, and they were of the opinion, I mean, despite all the, all the, um, you know, opinion polls and all that kind of stuff, they were of the opinion that, you know, if they said that, then they would get voted out. Whereas in Canada, you know, I think that if a, if a politician, you know, came out blatantly against psych the use of psychedelics for medical therapy, I, I you know, I think that that would be pretty, um, you know, you know, a dramatic shift in the opinion towards them. And, and you know, it might not even get reelected. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's the trend right now. Um, I guess where, uh, you know, I, I think deeper into it in the future, where if we have a society that is say no longer supporting military industrial complex and the, you know, empirical spread and how that, and if that is related to psychedelics, as I expect it would be, how that will then be uh, received and, and kind of mitigated through the, through the government and the, the powers that be. It's, I don't know, it's such a curious thing. Uh, it, it has me also now, I'm kind of wondering, not only personally, but globally, as psychedelics become more mainstream in imagining a world 20 or 50 years from now where there's just kind of like, it's a thing that we do and it's no big deal. What is the next kind of frontier of human ideological exploration? I've been getting really, and I, I, I feel like I'm, we're gonna have to have you on again. Uh, I, Absolutely. So much I would love to continue <laughs> talking about. Um, and if I didn't have to go to another meeting, I'd probably just kind of keep running in or I don't know what your time's looking like, but you know, I think about right now, a lot of the stuff that's coming up around, um, disclosure of, uh, you know, seemingly what seems to be life from other planets, uh, potentially we're getting into considering other dimensions and the, the possibilities of other dimensions interacting with ours. Uh, and so like, I just, as I continue on this train of thought saying maybe psychedelics do become long-term mainstream you know what's the next area of exploration um, because it's it feels like right now this is very much psychedelics are very much the, the the leading edge of human spiritual 
mental and even physical exploration. Yeah. Uh, God, there's something else I, I had in mind to ask you. Um, oh, Jamaica. I'm just curious what, oh, what's yeah. going on. You've been, you've been down there lately. What's going on with Jamaica? Uh, so my, yeah, my last trip was in January. Um, but uh, yeah, Jamaica's taking along. Um, I'm, I'm really lucky to have a, like, a, I work with an amazing team on the ground there. Um, and uh, yeah, there, so um, my company Haven, um, we have a, a psilocybin production facility in, in Jamaica. And, um, you know, the, the production facility is going really well. Uh, what is happening in sort of the realm of, you know, the psychedelic industry at the moment is that, uh, you know, along with the, you know, the slide and the general market, you know, there's not a lot of money going into the psychedelic industry right now. And um, there is uh, very, very few national regulations that kind of allow us to, uh, um, you know, allow us cust a customer base, right? So we've got a few customers in Canada, a few in the US, a few in, um, and we're kind of trying to turn on the UK right now. Um, but, uh, you know, we're, we're really starting to understand what the, you know, growing um, quality controlled um, um, psilocybin mushrooms, you know, what, what's involved in that and, and really kind of lining everything up so that as regulations change, as there's more and more um, patients and clients in the world, Mm -hmm. um, there's, uh, that, that we're kind of, you know, ready to go to start, um, you, you know, uh, uh, um, having like differentiated products, medical products ready to go. Um, the Jamaica thing in general is really interesting because, um, they, I, I don't know if it was on purpose or by accident, but you know, the, the fact that they left, you know, psilocybin and psilocin basically off, off of any kind of restricted drug list in Jamaica, um, has basically made it an epicenter. Um, and I mean, you, you know this very, very well, but, um, you know, more and more people are coming to Jamaica to, ex you know, to have mushroom experiences. Um, I was actually just on a call last week um, and we're, we're starting to help facilitate um, therapists. Um, so right now, one of the, the, the major issues with psychedelic therapy is that you can take all these courses online, in person, all that kind of stuff, but you don't actually, because of the jurisdictions, these these um, training programs are are in, you don't actually get to have a psychedelic experience. Right. So imagine being a psychedelic therapist and never having a psychedelic experience. Now, oh sorry, they ha they can't actually, and even if they do have a psychedelic experience, say in Canada or the U.S., um, professionally they can't really talk about it because mm -hmm. it's you know technically illegal. So yeah, we're going to help facilitate some of those therapists to come to Jamaica so they can actually have a psychedelic experience and then they can actually practice on, you know, a peer. Um, so, the, you know, the peer is on psychedelics so they can actually, you know, practice doing psychedelic therapy on somebody with that, that's doing psychedelics. And I think that that's going to be a real important element to the, um, to the, you know, to the growth of the, of psychedelic psychotherapy, um, you know, in the future, because we, we need, more therapists than we have. Um, and we certainly need better trained therapists. Yes. So I think that's, that's really interesting. I mean, it's really interesting that people are going and, and you know, they're doing sort of more, uh, you know, retreats or, or sort of like, you know, holiday health kind of, kind of things. But um, yeah, I think I, I'm really interested in, in getting those therapists trained and experienced. Um, Cause I think that that'll, that'll really start to shift the paradigm. Super important. Yeah. It's uh yeah. Yeah, it's it's incredible how many people are uh, becoming trained 
knowing that they're not going to have an outlet to practice. Uh, but it just speaks to the interest and the need, you know, and that's one of the things that we're, we just started at Sanctuary is um, a training program for, we call clerics and minister ordination. Uh, in January, we're going to start our first round of uh, minister training. So that's basically awesome. a psychedelic seminary is what we are, are developing. Yeah, we just got access to a property yesterday that's going to be kind of a significant launch pad for this. One of the things that I haven't there, there's no real um, kind of black and white answer to this is whether or not therapists can be, can have their licenses protected by uh, uh, religious protection. And it's, um, yeah, it's just kind of a curious, weird place that we're in. A lot of it is just individual tolerance for risk. Um, but I have spoke with a number of therapists who are willing to kind of put their license on the line in order to be able to work with psychedelics uh, through a religious avenue. Is there is there is there any kind of religious movement for psychedelics in Canada, or is it strictly medical therapeutic? What's that like? Yeah, so I mean, like I you know I, I run a public company, so um, you know I'm definitely in the sort of medical therapeutic realm, and mm -hmm. and you know basically basically all of our activities are in Canada anyways, are dictated by Health Canada. So we, we have a fairly um, you know, strict set of, of regulations that we have to hold to. Um, I know for, um, you know, I've, I've got several um, friends and colleagues that are involved in like Santo Daime and, and different sort of ayahuasca traditions here. Um, okay. and, and there's also a, uh, a fairly um, uh, a strong presence of the Native American church. Um, but I mean, those are all traditional um, practices, um, you know, as far as like sort of, I guess, new spiritual practices or new psychedelic religions, I haven't really come across um, that, you know, um, that in, in my, uh, in, in sort of um, talking to people in the psychedelic community and all that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, you bring up a really interesting point where like, yeah, therapists, um, you know, either are very strict and keep their, um, you know, very strict and keep their sort of like all the regulatory um, things very, um, you know, in a very square box. And then there's the the other therapists, where they're like, well, if we have a tool and, and you know, it's going to be helpful for the patients, then, you know, it shouldn't matter what the regulations say, you know, as long as it's safe for the patient, let's dive into it. Um, and I think here in Canada, a lot of, there's a lot of therapists that are are not necessarily psychedelic therapists, but they're either, you know, recommending or facilitating experiences. And what they use is the umbrella of patient, um, patient confidentiality. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, if you came into a clinic and it hasn't advertised, you know, uh, do mushrooms here, you know, that, that would be against the regulations. But in, the, in, in that sort of one-on-one, -on -one, you know, um, treatment room or, or, or whatever, you know, basically whatever is said mm -hmm. is confidential. Mm -hmm. So... Um, I think that um, what I've, you know, sort of, my, from my understanding is that, you know, therapists are starting to leverage that confidentiality to start to steer people in the right direction and, and, and that sort of thing. But, you know, as far as like, a, yeah, I mean, like, I think that there's a, there's definitely a, a very um, productive um, collaboration between, you know, the therapists and, and maybe more of a religious or spiritual um, you know, practice or, or, you know, what, what you guys are doing at Sanctuary. Um, cause I think that those two elements definitely, um, 
you know, there's, there's a lot of Vend overlap yes. um, in, in, in that, right? So uh, I think it would be, very, I mean, because the psychedelic experience is very individual and, you know, your therapeutic, um, you know, like if you're doing therapy, that's a very individual experience as well. So, you know, if you have practitioners that are uh, trained or, or um, you know, knowledgeable about um, those type of, um, type of things, then, um, then I think, I, I think that's just going to benefit the patients and, and, and it's going to make those, um, those types of, uh, therapies or religious experiences even even better 100 um, percent. well it's funny how we, how we for so long we've been talking about therapy and spiritual practice as two separate things and you know i know that they can be but as the science around psychedelics is showing us that the mystical experience is one of the most you know important components to the psychological healing that comes from the experience itself i think we're going to continue to find that there is so much more crossover than we had previously understood I, uh, on, on my uh, world-famous TikTok channel. If you guys haven't checked that out, you certainly should. Uh, I posted a little video today saying that, you know, we're not in a mental health crisis. We're in a spiritual health crisis. And I think, there, I think there's a lot of truth to that. And I don't think that we have to think of spirituality as this, again, dogmatic religion. We can think of spirituality as the other side of ourself that we can't see, you know. And so... Yeah. Blending these two worlds, I feel like, is going to be super important for the real effective healing. And then, again, the other aspect of that that you already brought into the conversation is the importance of community support after your experiences. 100%. Also, you know, and we haven't even touched on the group experience itself. You know, therapists are doing mostly doing one-on-one -on -one or very small sessions. The the value of the group psychedelic experience, which is how it's been kind of historically presented, is I, I, I think it's far underestimated right now in uh, the the wellness community anyway. Yeah, hundred percent. So before before we hop off here though, uh, please tell our listeners a little bit more in your words. I'll definitely post links to the website and everything, but. Why LSD for breakfast, which I fucking love the name. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. So, um, yeah, LSD for breakfast um, came out of a, a, a psychedelic experience that I had um, uh, for spring equinox. I, um, I, I traveled to L.A. and then um, went with a group of 10 very extraordinary individuals to um, to Death Valley. Um, we went to this like amazing singing dune in Death Valley um, and, and we did... Um, we did mushrooms and we hiked around the dune and we had a ketamine experience and um, it was a yeah very sort of it was one of those like life altering experiences and um, you know the people that I met along the way um, they really sort of uh, helped me realize that um, you know I had a f you know I have a few things to say about psychedelics and um, and really the next the you know the next thing that we all have to do. Um, is educate everyone else about psychedelics. We have to, you know, keep it positive, look into the future, and and really start to help people understand that. And you know, working as a as an executive of a public company, and I have a very small box that you know that I I can operate in in that role, um, and that's fine. I you know I, I I'm 
very excited that you know that that we've achieved what what we've achieved with with uh, with Haven and and all of that stuff. And um, yeah, very grateful for the experience. And and you know, I work with an amazing team, but this experience in the desert really made me understand that you know I have a um, you know not all of my voice is you know being heard. Mm. So um, you know I. I've, I talked with a bunch of people about different ways, you know, that like the podcast is, is an amazing way to sort of get your voice heard and all that kind of stuff. But um, yeah, anyways, I, I zeroed in af after some uh, conversations with a, a really good friend of mine, zeroed in on, on a newsletter as a format. Um, so yeah, LSD for breakfast is, uh, I mean, I forget, it was a long, long time ago um, when, you know, we were high on LSD and one of my friends is like, LSD for breakfast, ha, ha, ha. That's going to be the name of your autobiography or your biography one day. <laughs> and, and so it's, it's just, it's just kind of stuck. But, but honestly, it's, it's, it's not just, uh, you know, it's not, not just tongue in cheek or funny. It's, it's actually my favorite time to do LSD because mm -hmm. what better day can you have um, than when you're high on LSD? Um, and, you know, we're, we often sort of the, the meme is, oh, we're going to do drugs at night or we'll go, you know, we'll go out, we'll go whatever. But, um, you know, just simply walking, walking around and experiencing, you know, the day on LSD is it's pretty extraordinary. So uh, so LSD for breakfast, um, it's yeah, it, it's kind of like a, a little in joke from a long, long time ago. But it's also a uh, it's also my recommendation to the world. Um, so <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, I, I, <laughs> yeah, so I, I've, I've done the first one came out Jan, or September 1st. Um, you can check it out. www.lsdforbreakfast.com. Um, the next one's coming out in October. Um, it's my, the, the mission is to get one out a month. Um, it's a lot, it's a lot of writing and a lot of work, but um, I, it's, it's just something that I've been really enjoying and, and just being able to sit. I mean, you know, it's, it's a daunting task to sit down with a blank screen and say, you're allowed to write whatever you want. Mm -hmm. um, but at the same time, it's also really exhilarating because it's mm -hmm. like, what, what kind of, you know, interesting like ideas or thoughts or whatever do I want to put out into the world? So, um, so yeah, it's, it's, uh, I've been, uh, I've been really enjoying the, the, the process and uh, hopefully there's some, some people out there um, that are in, enjoying the process as well. I'm sure there are. I'm sure there are. And the, the more you, the more you expose it, the more you expose people to the beauties of this compound, and the more people will be open to enjoying it. You know, having seen the development of psilocybin over the last 20, 30 years, and and kind of now, as I step back and and kind of really look at my role in that, and and how just what a what a wonderful place it is to be, and knowing that we are really at the leading edge again and educating people about something that is so valuable and so vital to uh, to their their lives. So I really, yes. really appreciate that you can continue to do that, especially with LSD. You know, I've said for years that I'm going to, I've built a career on psilocybin. I'm going to retire into LSD. And when I'm 70 yeah. years old, it's just going to be me and LSD every day, all day. <laughs> yeah, well, you and me both, we'll, we'll have rocking chairs on the porch. <laughs> LSD for breakfast. LSD for I breakfast. love it. I love yeah. it. Thank you Amazing. so much, Ivan. It's been a wonderful uh, thank conversation. You. I look yeah, forward likewise. to more. Yeah. 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 And yeah, look, looking forward to the next conversation. And um, yeah. Um, yeah, great, great work with Sanctuary and all, all the stuff you're doing there. So uh, yeah, keep up the good work and uh, looking, looking forward to uh, our next chat.